We are going to read now of the Jesus who Helen loved and followed, who we love and try our best to follow as he invites us to apprentice ourselves to him. And if you've got a Bible with you or I see a Bible in front of you, won't you open it to John chapter 13? Normally, most of you just watch the words on the screen, but if you can get a Bible on a device or somewhere, open it up today, will you? Because we're going to, I'm teaching today rather than preaching. We're going to be walking through some of this stuff and you're going to want to keep an eye on it. So grab, open, turn on, scroll to, whatever your preference is, but listen now for the word of God. From John chapter 13, reading from verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered him, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean and you are clean, although not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Father, we love your word, the stories in them that tell us about you and who you are and what you have done and reveal to us what it is to be loved by you and to follow you and to walk faithfully with you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, come and allow these words to come alive as you breathe them into us and shape us with them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. We're not going to be here for an hour. Nicola was just joking. Don't panic. Hopefully. So a friend of mine or friends of mine um, recently had twins. 
Um, some of you will know them, but they recently had twins and um, delighted for them. Delighted I didn't have twins, but delighted for them. Um, and it, it, it gave me flashbacks to when our kids were born. And you know, I was one of those dads who I had never changed a nappy until my own kids were born. I thought to myself, why would you change somebody? That's, what? So I, I didn't do it. Didn't do it. I thought, when my kids come along, I'll, do, I'll be a hands-on dad, but I'm not changing somebody else. So the kids nappy. I was fine. And then when our kids were born, and I had, you know, all the book knowledge, but none of the actual lived experience of what it was like to do this stuff with babies and kids and all that there. Uh, and they don't teach you in those parenting classes, they don't teach you all of it. They teach you the main stuff, but not the secret stuff. Like, for example, what my wife knew that I didn't know, not all nappies are equal. <laughs> and if you've been a parent or a grandparent or done crash um, or hung out with your niece or nephew when they were tiny, you'll know what I mean, but, but not all nappies are of equal value. And, and my wife knew this, but I didn't. And she just had a sixth sense for knowing, I, I'll go change the nappy now, or is it not your turn to do this? And she just knew. She knew, because like, in the nappy scale, there's the wee wet one, which is fine to do, isn't it? You know, like, oh, so cute. It's lovely. But then there's the, the clothes peg and the nose one. You know what I'm talking about? Where you open it and you're going like... And you're thinking, how can something so beautiful and cute... <laughs> and then there's the squirter. <laughs> well, you think they're done, and you take the nappy off, and they're not done. They're not done. It's more of an issue with boys and girls, but we'll not get into that right now. Um, and then, this is the one I seem to always get caught with. The punami. The leaker. That when you start to do it, you realize the nappy hasn't done its job. Hasn't even come close. Legs, back, even around the side. Everything is covered. And you have to start with wipes that are like this size. And midwives would tell you to use cotton wool with water. What? <laughs> the power washer. Don't actually use a power washer. Boy, that was an education 13 years ago, 14 years ago. My goodness. But as disgusting as it is sometimes, the thought of allowing my child to lie in its own filth, I would have ran through a brick wall to change my child's nappy rather than allowing them to linger and live and stay in that level of their own making. And that's the picture I want you to hold in your head. Not the funny story about nappies, but the depth of love a parent has for a child that doing something like that for them, as difficult as it can be, as gross as we can joke about it as it is, the thought of not doing it and leaving the kid in their own nappy, in their own filth, is absolutely unimaginable. That's the picture I want you to hold in your head as we come to this text, this, this picture that we have of Jesus at the Last Supper washing the feet of his disciples. This picture of him loving them so much that he would inconvenience himself to do what was unimaginable rather than leaving them in the state that they were in. 
So hold that picture in your head. What we're going to do, we're going to walk through this text. If you've been around church at all, you know this story. You can probably preach it to me. But I want to walk through this text, lift a few things out of it, and then at the end, just identify a couple of discipleship implications or apprentice implications as we think what it looked like for Peter to be an apprentice of Jesus and what it looks like for us to be an apprentice of Jesus. What are the apprentice implications coming out of this text? And so as we walk through it, just in verse 1, it starts with Passover. John's gospel says it was just before the Passover, and many think John meant it was the day before the Passover. That's problematic because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all said was the Passover. And so already we're into a problem of was it the Passover or was it the day before the Passover? And does it matter and is it important? And, and the truth is we're not totally sure. Probably this was the Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating with his friends. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel tend to be a little bit more chronological as they write things. John's gospel tends to be less chronological and more theological. John is often making theological points by what he says rather than telling us exactly the order of how things happened. That wasn't his main priority. So what's John trying to tell us if we if he's saying it was before or the day before the Passover, but we probably think it was the Passover meal that Jesus was having, what was he trying to tell us? Well, the Passover was, well, if you've been around church, you know where it comes from. If you don't, let me give you a quick synopsis. The Passover dated back to the story of Exodus, when the Hebrew people, God's people, were enslaved there to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, doing all this hard manual labor, all this hard work. And God came to free them, and he sent Moses as a deliverer to bring the people, a liberator, out of exile, out of, out of um, slavery into the promised land. And he did it by sending a number of plagues on the Egyptian people to convince them that he was God, that he was more powerful than their God, and that they shouldn't be keeping the Hebrew people as slaves. And it finally came down to the final plague, which was the angel of death passed over the houses and struck down the firstborn person and animal in every home, every family, every barnyard, unless that family had taken a lamb and killed the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house. And they were to eat bread with no yeast. They were to be ready to get up and leave because the next morning they were freed, they were liberated. And they left Egypt and went to the promised land. There's a whole big story, a whole big journey about that. But that's where it came from. And then every year following that, God's people celebrated the Passover meal. And they, they sacrificed a lamb and they ate unleavened bread. And they had a whole um, liturgy that went with this meal. A whole story that went with this meal. And what John is telling us by saying it was before the Passover, when really it probably was the Passover, what John is saying is the Passover is no longer fit for purpose. The Jewish people believed that the Passover was one of the key things that they did to remember that they were God's chosen people. And what John is saying is something new is about to happen. And what you did in the past is no longer fit for purpose. God's about to do a new thing. One of the ways we know that is because in all four of the Gospels as it talks about this meal, the center part of the meal for a Jewish person was the lamb. 
that was sacrificed in the blood of the lamb that was meant to be the atoning sacrifice for their sins. There is no mention of Jesus having a lamb on the table as part of the Passover meal. Now, part of the practical reason for that was Jesus, in terms of the Jewish leaders who worked at the temple where you had to get the lamb from, thought Jesus was apostate. They thought he wasn't doing things right, so they wouldn't have given him a lamb to sacrifice for the meal anyway. But it's more than that. They didn't have a lamb on the table because Jesus himself was about to become the sacrificial lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. No longer were the Jewish people going to have to go to a temple and sacrifice animals and spill blood to have their sin temporarily forgiven. Those things were only ever a sign pointing to what Jesus did after this meal. And Jesus is saying at the meal, and John's telling us at the meal, Passover is no longer fit for purpose. And killing an animal to see sins forgiven is no longer fit for purpose. And Jesus was saying, those things were only ever pointing to me. I am becoming the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. My blood will be the price that pays for your sins. Just interesting. So it is. To see how the story all fits together. And then as you read on through it, from verses 1 to 3, we see that Jesus was fully aware of what he was doing. This stuff wasn't coming as a surprise to him. He was fully aware of what he was doing. He, he chose to walk this path. He says to them, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but later you will. He knew he was going to the cross. Do you remember after this, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays on his knees. He sweats drops of blood. He says, God, if there's any other way, but I know there's not, I'm going to choose your way. And I offer myself so that God's people can be forgiven and redeemed. Jesus knew. He knew, he knew even holding all this in his head, he knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. We're told that. He knew that Peter was going to deny him and run away and leave him. He knew that. And still, he was willing to go to the cross. Still, he was willing to, to love them. John says here, or the NIV says here, he loved them to the end. A better translation of the Greek is his love had no boundaries or no limits. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it when he says, if you were the last person, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would still have done this for you. Jesus would still have died for you. Sometimes we think those things are great people in the Bible and, and of course Jesus loves everybody else in church, but if he knew what I was really like, Jesus knew, Jesus knows. And still he went to the cross because he wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his grace. He wants you to know his forgiveness. He wants you to have the life both here and for eternity that he has always wanted you to have. And then you come to verses four and five, the actual foot washing part of the text. And what's really interesting is that in some of the gospels we read the thing the disciples were doing before this as they were walking along the road before the Passover, they were arguing about who was the greatest. 
Isn't that, isn't that kind of ironic, isn't it? They were arguing about who was the greatest. So they were. And they come in for the meal. And the custom back in the day was, you know, they were walking along with sandals on, kind of dusty roads, sweaty, arid, kind of um, temperature, humidity, open-toe sandals. They walked along. People just left excrement on the roads, dirt on the roads, animal feces on the roads. They're walking along their shoes, their flip-flops, their toes. Got covered in all this stuff. And they went in for a meal. And tradition was the servant in the house would come with a basin of water at all and clean their feet. They're taking their shoes off on the way in and their feet would have been washed. But the guys have been arguing about who's the greatest. I held the bread when I you know, multiplied it and fed the 5,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the one who got the boat and walked on water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did this. Yeah, but, but... And they came in and there was no servant. So they kicked their shoes off and reclined at the table. Nobody moved. And they're thinking, who's... I know I'm the greatest, but who's the least? Who's the one going to go and wash the feet? And Jesus let the kind of tension build maybe a little bit, I like to think. And then he got up and he took off his cloak. He left kind of in his undergarments. He got a towel, wrapped it around his waist. He took the basin of water and he went and he knelt. I was going to actually act this out then. I thought if I start doing that, I'll not have time to preach the rest of the sermon. But he, he knelt at Michael's feet and started washing Michael's feet. And then he went across to Roger's feet, started washing Roger's feet. And then he went across to Caris's feet and started washing Caris's feet. And everybody in the room starts to realize how awkward this is. Because they were all arguing about who was the greatest and the one who lost the argument should have been the one who was washing the feet of everybody else because they were the least in terms of social status. But nobody was doubting the fact that Jesus was the greatest. They'd all recognized that he was the Messiah, that he was Lord, that he was teacher. Everybody in the room couldn't agree who was meant to wash everybody's feet, but everybody in the room knew who definitely wasn't meant to wash anybody's feet, and that was Jesus. And yet he's the one who starts to wash the disciples' feet. Going from person to person, washing their feet. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. It's remarkable that he washed Judas Iscariot's feet when he knew what Judas was going to do. You ever think about that? Because Judas got up and left the table and carried out the stuff he was going to do after Jesus returned to the table. Jesus washed Judas Iscariot's feet knowing that Judas was going to betray him and hand him over to be killed. Jesus washed his feet. Jesus, and we'll look at this in a second, but he washed Peter's feet even though he knew Peter was going to deny him and ditch him and say, I never knew him. I have no part with him. He knelt and he washed the dirt off Judas's feet. He washed the dirt off Peter's feet. I think it's remarkable. I think it's absolutely remarkable. 
It wasn't just gross. It wasn't just socially awkward. It was unimaginable that the Son of God would take on the role of a servant and kneel and wash the feet of those who were following him faithfully and wash the feet of those who would let him down and wash the feet of those who would betray him and wash the feet of those who thought they were too good. It's remarkable. And yet one of the first songs, we were singing some songs earlier, but one of the first songs of the early church, we see it, commentators believe it was a hymn that the church sang in Philippians chapter 2. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, <coughs> taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Do you think whoever, when Paul wrote this, and he's probably quoting a hymn that was being sung, so whoever had penned this and created this, do you think they had in mind this moment when Jesus stripped off and the Son of God knelt at the feet of people who were following him and people who were betraying him and people who were denying him in the role of a servant and washed the dirt off their feet? He humbled himself, taking on the role of a servant. Incredible. Almost unimaginable. And yet there it is. We're in a season at the minute where we're seeing like really prominent Christian leaders around the world who, who, who many of us have looked up to and followed their teaching and, and, and really respected. We're seeing them fall from grace and sometimes it's for moral failure and sometimes it's for financial corruption and sometimes... Sometimes it's bullying and aggressive behavior. There's all kinds of things being brought to the surface at the minute. And I was sharing with the guys in the prayer meeting, you know, I'm really, I'm grieved at the minute at the lack of humility that we see in some of those leaders that has created situations where they have been working in a way that have no checks and balances around them. There's been no humility in their posture. There's, they haven't let anybody close enough to see what's going on in their lives, to call them to account before these travesties that are happening. And I'm grieved at the response of people on social media who, it's a feeding frenzy gossiping about it. Because just as there's no humility in those leaders who have led that way, I don't see humility in a lot of people who are commenting on it either. I'm thinking the Jesus who knelt at their feet to wash their filth off is the same Jesus that kneels at their feet to wash their filth off is the same Jesus that kneels at my feet and your feet. It's interesting. And it's not that we shouldn't have leaders that are apostolic and strong in their leadership. Of course we should, but, but humility must be a quality. 
humble enough to allow people to come around them, to hold them to account, to challenge them before things slide too far down the rabbit hole. And then this is what we're left with. Jesus knelt and washed the feet of the disciples. Jesus came to Peter then, and he knelt at Peter's feet. And Peter is fascinating. Peter, who's, who's gung-ho for Jesus, all in for Jesus, Peter says, no, hold on a second. You can't, you can't be serious. You, you're going to wash my feet. This is wrong, Jesus. Now, we're not told why he thinks that. Does he think that because of respect for Jesus and guilt that he didn't move first to wash the feet, realizing that Jesus shouldn't be the one because he's not the least important, he's the most important person in the room? Or is it pride, thinking, Jesus, I don't actually need you to do this for me. Kind of get what's going on here, but I don't really need you to do this for me. And Jesus says to him, you don't understand now, but, but later you will. I'm not preaching, I'm just throwing this wee comment out here. Um, there's an interesting relationship between understanding and obedience. And we have come to a place in Western society of how we process information that we have to understand everything before we step into something. We want all the facts, all the information before we make the decision. And yet here with the situation, and actually we see it again and again and again with God's people, where Jesus invites someone to do something and they only see what the next step looks like. They don't see all of the implications. They don't see all of the information. And we talked about this last week with getting out of the boat, but I, but I think there's still some of you wrestling with it. Some of you feel that prompt of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, to come and do something, to lay something down, to pick something up. I don't know what it is. But there's a decision and you're going, I need more information. I need to know more. And Jesus is going, no, you need to know me. And if you know me, you'll know it's okay to follow me. There's something interesting going on here in the relationship between understanding and obedience. Jesus says to Peter, you don't understand now, but later you will, but you've got to let me wash your feet. If you don't let me wash your feet, you could have no part with me. And obviously, he's not talking about a bowl of water on the ground, and he's not even talking about baptism. He's talking about the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross and he becomes that sacrificial lamb of God that, that symbolically his blood is what washes our hearts clean and washes our sin away. And Jesus is saying, unless I wash your sin away, you can have no part with me. Unless you humble yourself and repent and turn to me, you can have no part with me. The penny's starting to drop for Peter, and Peter says to Jesus, I'm in, I want this, I want this. I want you to, not just my feet, but my hands, my head, everything about me. I want you to wash me completely from head to toe. I want all of it, Jesus. And Jesus interestingly says to Peter, if you've, someone's already had a bath, they don't need another bath. They just need to wash their feet. And the really simple way what he's saying is, you've already been forgiven. You've already expressed faith. You've already stepped into that relationship with me. You are forgiven, you are mine, you are justified, to use the big biblical word. 
You're clean. But all you've got to do now is have your feet washed. And what he's talking about there, full bath, feet washed, is the difference in that first experience of grace where you are completely forgiven. Past, present, and future. You are God's in that moment when you give your life to Jesus. You are justified. If you died today as a Christian, you would go straight to heaven just as if I never sinned. But we all know the stuff going on in our lives is not perfect. We all have thought things, said things, done things this week that we regret, or at least if God showed up, we'd suddenly realize we regret. And the process of sanctification is that daily experience of grace. It's not being completely forgiven from start to finish. You already have that coming to Jesus at the start of the day, at the end of the day, and saying, Jesus, I'm sorry for this. It's that daily experience of grace where he says, you are loved, you are forgiven. You are loved, you are forgiven. You are loved, you are forgiven. I think it's a beautiful picture, the the bath or the foot washing. Peter's already bathed. He's already completely forgiven, justified before Jesus. And yet as he walks and follows Jesus in a world that is broken, it's only his feet that touch the brokenness of the world. His heart's pure, his heart's clean, but he needs his feet to be washed because that's what touches the brokenness of the world. We all need that daily experience of grace. We all need to be reminded that we are loved, that we are forgiven. We all need that daily pattern of turning from the mistakes that we've made back to Jesus. But if we've prayed that prayer, if we've turned to him, given our lives to him as Lord and Savior, we are forgiven. We are his. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? Two things as we wrap this up. Two discipleship apprentice implications flowing out of the last part of the text where Jesus sits them down and says, do you understand now? Do you get this? Do you see what I'm saying? First one, Peter sees the purpose of Jesus' ministry. He's been seeing him doing all sorts of things, but I think in this moment he sees the purpose of Jesus' ministry. I've seen in the news this week the ugliness of humanity at maybe one of its very worst playing out in real time before our eyes. There was a story that the BBC ran this week, actually all the papers ran this week and news channels, about a BBC presenter who was accused of a significant act of moral failure. And the story broke in one of the papers. I'm not going to go into the names here, but do you know the story I'm talking about? The story broke in one of the papers. And there was an outcry from the left and the right. There was an outcry at this. And then as the days went on, we, we, we got a little bit more information and we, we heard the celebrity's name. We heard some more information of what had happened. And we, we, we saw the battle that that individual was experiencing between maintaining a normal life in a celebrity culture and battling profound mental health. Doesn't excuse what they did, but it's another layer to the story. And then people started looking at the story from different angles and 
And there was a level of awareness that came of um, the willingness of some to exploit somebody's personal failure for financial gain. The moral question of should the newspaper have broke this story so early without having all the facts. And then what you watch the whole way through it is this rampage on social media of this celebrity being hung, drawn, and quartered before all the facts are in the public square. And ringing in the back of my ears, Jesus says, if you even look at a woman or a man lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. And I know there's other things going on there. I, I get that. But ringing in my ears is Jesus saying, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye or your sister's eye. And from that individual's mistake that there should be accountability for, there's no question about it. There was a category of mistakes and brokenness that followed in the response of a number of people and groups. And I don't think those within the church were devoid from responsibility on that either. You know, Michael Green famously said, and others have quoted him since that, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Paul writes, all have sinned, not just some, not just the ones who sins find themselves portrayed on social media or in the papers. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's you and that's me as well. And there's not a sliding scale with this stuff. We are all living in death. We are all children of darkness. We don't like that language. That's what the Bible says. We are all separated from God because of it. And it's not that Jesus came to make bad people good. He came to bring you from death into life. He came to bring you from death into life. He came to wash us clean and to give us a new heart, not just our feet, but all of us. And to bring us into his family. Peter sees this and experiences this and then gives his whole life as an apprentice of Jesus to proclaiming and declaring this. When we turn to the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and people must believe and repent and turn to him. And over 3,000 people were saved that day. Peter gave his whole life to proclaiming this truth as an apprentice of Jesus. Maybe this morning... You need your heart washed. Maybe this morning you're not a Christian. You've been coming to church and doing the church. Maybe you grew up here. Maybe you've been invited along. I don't know. But you're not a Christian, perhaps. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, I want to bring you from death to life. I want to bring you from outside my family into my family. I want to forgive you and make you whole and bring you on a journey that will last for eternity and it'll be better than anything you can possibly imagine. It's what you're created for. But you have to allow him to wash you clean.
You have to allow him to wash you clean. And then for some of you, you are a Christian, but you've got stuck in a pattern of sin or you've done something stupid. And you're sitting this morning like Peter at the table saying, Jesus, don't even look at me. I can't believe I've let you down like this again. Don't even look at me. And Jesus said, let me wash your feet. Your heart's already clean, but let me wash your feet. Let me remind you that you are loved and that you are forgiven and you are mine. We're going to pray in a minute and give both of you groups a chance to allow Jesus to wash you, whether it's your heart or your feet. Allow Jesus to wash you. The second thing I want to pull out this morning is Peter discovers the underlying pattern of apprenticeship to Jesus. This journey of following Jesus is stepping into humility. It's a journey of humility. It's not about self and self-fulfillment. It's a journey of keeping our eyes on Jesus. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, I'm quoting him a bit this morning, he's great. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's really hard in this culture we live in where we're constantly checking our phones and looking at the number of likes that we have and who's responded to the posts we've put up. And even in church this morning, you've been thinking, do I like that song we've been singing? We see everything through our own lens of experience, through our own eyes, don't we? And yet this journey of humility is a journey to take our eyes off ourselves onto Jesus. And it's a journey of taking our eyes off ourselves onto the people who he calls us to love and to serve. Jesus' eyes weren't on himself when he knelt at Judas Iscariot's feet and washed the filth off them. And his eyes weren't on himself when he opened his arms on the cross and died for your sin and for mine. His eyes were on us. And in that moment, Peter saw the pattern for life that he was being invited to step into. It was a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. It was a life of humility. And it's hard. It's hard sometimes because we're self-obsessed and all we see is ourselves. And it's hard sometimes because we're insecure and we don't want to step out of the boat and do the thing that he's asking us to do. But I'm convinced as I look at this story and then follow the trajectory of Peter's life that there's something about foot washing and humility that is key for us as disciples. It's our willingness to wash each other's feet. Not literally, unless somebody needs their feet washed, but not literally. We're not going to get basins out and do all that. Take a look at the person to your left. Take a look at the person to your right. Now look behind you at the person behind you who you might not know as well. What does it look like to love that person as much, if not more, than you love your own family? What does it look like to wash their feet, to love them enough to inconvenience yourself? How does that impact your words, your attitude towards them? your generosity towards them, your interest in them, your willingness to inconvenience self to help them. That's what it is to be a member of Orangefield. Church is family. Church is the willingness 
in the pattern of Jesus to wash the feet of the people around you, even when their feet are stinking. Willing to wash each other's feet. Peter went on from this moment to help establish a church where we read about in Acts chapter 2, had everything in common. Somebody was struggling, they helped them out. They prayed with them, they loved them, they gave to them, they supported them, they got them back on their feet. They walked with them into maturity with Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 onwards, I think it is. Apprenticeship to Jesus is the willingness to wash the feet of the people around you in this place. And apprenticeship to Jesus is the willingness to wash the stranger's feet as well. What does Peter do in Acts chapter 3? He's going to the temple, he's going to worship, he's going to teach, he's going to do his Jesus thing and somebody interrupts him asking for money, a guy who hasn't walked, who's lame in both legs and Peter stops and washes his feet. What do you need, brother? Silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Inconveniences his own plans for the day to love the stranger and wash the feet of the stranger. Here's a confession moment for you. I tell you this because I feel guilty about it, but I tell you this because I don't want to model perfection. I want accountability. I want you to ask me how I got on with it. My daughter is doing stuff in the opera house last week, this week. Um, so I'm dropping her off every day, picking her up every day. And there's two guys that sleep in the side doorway of the opera house, two homeless guys. If you've been in Belfast, you've seen them. I've walked past those guys twice a day, well, almost twice a day every day for the past 10 days, and I still don't know their names. And I haven't bought a cup of coffee for them. In spite of the fact the Holy Spirit's been prompting me to do that, I've been too busy with my own stuff. So I'm publicly acknowledging that I've dropped the ball there. And I'm saying it to you, because now one of you is going to say to me in the next week, did you catch those guys' names? I wonder where the strangers are in your life that God's asking you to stop and wash their feet. And then finally, and this is finally, bam, you'll come back up. As a church, I believe that we are called to wash the feet of the city. William Carey, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury back in the day, he famously said, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. I love that statement. The church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Here's a shocking thing. Orangefield isn't here to make our lives better. That's what David Lloyd's for. Orangefield is here to be a transforming presence in the city. Orangefield is here so that the people that live in Orby and the Castlereagh Road and Clondoff and Clarewood, their lives are better because Orangefield is here. And we do that by inviting people in and telling them about Jesus and maturing disciples and loving people and caring for them at their point of need. Of course, we do all those things. But when we step out of this place, our purpose is to be the transforming presence of Jesus in the city where he's called us to be. What does it look like for us as a church to wash the feet of the city? It looks like the food bank. And it looks like CAP. And it looks like seniors clubs. And it looks like youth clubs in Clondoff and Clarawood. It looks like parent and toddlers groups. And it looks 
like us as a church taking a few hours from the end of our week and putting on a set of gloves and kneeling in somebody's garden and pulling weeds out. Can't remember the exact figures, but on Friday we had about 29 out of about 1,000 people in Orangefield who'd signed up for Street Reach. Now maybe we as a leadership have got this wrong and that's the wrong thing for us to be doing. Or maybe you as a congregation have got this wrong and haven't yet signed up for it. And my question is simply this. What does it look like for us as a church to wash the feet of the city? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come and rest on your people and minister to them now. God, forgive me that la- the way I said that last comment. It wasn't meant to create guilt or shame in anybody's life. And free people now from that burden of guilt and shame, I pray. If you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus, you want him to wash your heart and make you whole, I just invite you to open your hands and say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me, make me clean, make me yours. Or maybe you are a Christian and you've just got stuck in something or you've made a a mistake or you're making that mistake again and again and you need a fresh experience of his grace but you've been scared to ask for it. Ask, open your hands, say, Jesus, come wash my feet. Just remind me that I'm covered in your grace, your forgiveness, your love. And then like Peter figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus, to apprentice our lives to him. Lord, the thing that's stuck, the thing that's resonated today, don't let us forget it, don't let us lay it down as we leave the doors here, but let us follow you in a posture of humility. Show us whose feet you're asking us to wash. Show us who you're asking us to love. Give us the courage to do it and to do it with absolute humility. To do it in the pattern of you, Jesus, our servant king. In Jesus' name, amen.